going to be able to discipline anybody on this campus again. <laughs> so I'm not as bad as you were when you were in college. That's probably about the truth as well. Well, listen, one of the things that I got to do recently uh, that I haven't done for a couple of years is some of you said that you have missed me. I've been, I've been gone for a couple of weeks, and I visited West Virginia again. And I've shared with you and you've shared with me, some of you, about your experience in going home. And my experience in going home, because of the testimony that Russ just shared with you, is, is quite an interesting time. At, at the age of 20, after going to Marshall University for one year, I got saved. And after getting saved, three weeks later, I went away to a Christian college. Well, that was 15 years ago. And the description that Russ just gave you was the way that I was when I left home. And basically, I've been back maybe, maybe less than two weeks in 15 years to my hometown and to see my parents. My parents who are, not, who are not believers, my parents who aren't supportive of what I do, my parents who in, in 11 years of marriage have come to visit me one time. We just have totally separated ways. And some of you had that same experience because you've told me about it and you've told our, our, our staff about it. And so when I go back home, I'm, I'm literally a stranger. I go back into West Virginia and, and I sit down with my mom and dad and after just a couple of minutes, I, I run out of things to say. Uh, and, and in many ways, that visit back home, like the experience that you have, is an incredibly hard time. Uh, I would give anything to go home, as some of you would, and sit down with my mom and dad and to really feel like I'm being nurtured in my walk with God. To sit down and say, Dad, I'm struggling with this. Can I share this with you and to pray with you about it? Uh, I remember when I was engaged to be married, and that was the first major decision I made as a, as a new believer in Christ. I so desperately wanted to be able to talk to my parents about that. Because here I was, a new Christian. I'd been saved about three years. I was engaged to a girl, and, and I was really having uh, confusion on about what it means to be a Christ, Christian husband. And, and on a couple of occasions, I tried talking to my dad, who's an unbeliever, and it was just like uh, we were totally, totally on different wavelengths. And some of you had the same experience. So going home for me is not a fun time. Uh, in many ways, it's a very hard time, very sad time. Because we're strangers, in some ways, it's also funny. Uh, because being away from home for several years, uh, they know nothing about me, basically. They know nothing about my marriage. They know nothing about my two boys. And my boys, Nate, who is four, and, and my other boy, who is two. And they know nothing about the parenting practices that we practice in our marriage. And, of course, my parents, when we were being raised, basically their parenting practice was, uh, if you get in jail, we'll bail you out. And uh, one time I remember, Mom, this is the truth, we were sitting there at the table, and I was, in, I was a, now a pubescent primate. I'd entered into pu puberty, and my mom said, Bob, aren't you going to have that talk with Dave? And Dad just looked at me and said, well, he can find out the same way I did on the street. He said, I'm not going to talk to him about you know, anything doing with sex, dealing with all of that. He said, I, he said I'm not going to do that. And that's, my parents have had almost no involvement in my life, and that's why at age 13 I ended up in jail for, for the first time. That's only because that was the first time they caught me. Uh, at a very early age, I was, I was in all kinds of problems. But because they know nothing about our parenting practices, when Kim and I work with our two boys, it sometimes gets to be funny. Right now, we're working with our youngest son, Taylor, who's two, potty training him. And now you maybe have not been around anyone who's being potty trained, but if you have, you know that there is great humor and excitement to a potty training experience. Uh, it, it's kind of comic when on several occasions we've wished that we had a video camera because Kim, myself, and Kelly, our secretary, who's my sister-in-law who lives with us, will gather into the bathroom and, we'll, and Taylor, our son, will come and grab us, bring us in. So come and look, come and look. And he's so excited because he's gone to the bathroom in the pot. And so we all stand around and we all go and we all stick our head in the pot to look at what's in there. And then we get all excited and clap and take us, doesn't, doesn't take a whole lot to entertain old people. And so anyway, 
when I when I go home, one of the things that we do, I mean, I'm totally against uh, totally against behavioralism, totally against manipulation, totally against all that, except when it comes to potty training. Uh, when it comes to potty training, anything's okay with me as long as it works. Threatening, you know, anything. I don't care what it is. And so with Taylor, what my wife does is that every time that Taylor doesn't go to the bathroom in the diaper and goes to the bathroom in the, in the toilet, she gives him M&Ms. And so this becomes a big thing for him. I mean, he, he gets, goes into the bathroom and he sits on the toilet and then he comes out and he's, and he's smiling real big and says, M&M, M&M, M&M. And so it's a big process in our house. When we went home, of course, my parents have absolutely no context for this stuff. And so Taylor is standing there and, and dad is going to go to the, dad is walking through the house and Tady, Tady, who, who we call him Tady, he says, uh, he said, we're going, you know, because he doesn't talk real well two years. We're going, saying it to my father. And my dad says, I'm going to the bathroom. He says, we're going, Papa. He says, going to the bathroom. And so my dad walks through the house, goes in the bathroom, comes out. And Taylor walks up to my, my dad and says, M&M? <laughs> and, my, and my dad is just looking like, what? And he says, M&M, Papa? You get M&M? And, and he, so my dad comes to me and says, Dave, what are you doing with your son in the bathroom? With the M&Ms. And I said, well, Dad, and I had to sit down and explain the whole thing to him. So some of it's funny, um, but the most part is, 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 is hard stuff. But another interesting experience I have when I go home is that my family on my dad's side is in education. I mean, they're almost all educators. My two brothers are in education. My older brother has taught for several years in, in a public school, in a public college, university, and a public high school. My younger brother has taught and been involved in education for many years. He's, they're both working on additional degrees in education. They're committed to education. And then I have in my family many educators. I have two or three principals of high schools in my family. I have a, 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 an uncle who's a doctor of psychiatry who teach at West, teaches at West Virginia State. I have a lot of educators, a lot of teachers, a lot of principals. A lot of people are in education. So when I go home, none of those people are saved, except my younger brother. And so when I go to my house in West Virginia and visit my family in Ohio and in Kentucky, and we sit down, inevitably, the conversation comes up and, and is directed around to the topic of education. One, because my brother is an incredibly liberal person. Uh, and he just loves to talk about education, and he loves to make fun of Christians. He loves to make us look like we're ignorant, we're naive, we know nothing about education, we know nothing about academ uh, the academic world. And so he just loves to get us in a big table in my mom and dad's house and sit down and bring up the talk of, of education. And that always happens. And so this time I thought what I would do, rather than have him, and he usually prepares himself because he will... He will listen to tapes of John MacArthur or he'll listen to tapes of uh, or listen to the radio program of John or he'll pick up something a, a book that he has read about Christian education and he'll be geared up for me he'll be loaded for bear so when I come home he's, he's all over me about education and I know nothing about what he does so this time I thought I'd do something different one just just to pursue a little bit of a greater relationship with him and two to learn about what he does I decided to go to his school and so I spent on this vacation several days in my brother's high school sitting in classes, watching what he does, sitting in the, the faculty staff lounge, talking to the teachers, meeting the principal, the vice principal, uh, and then getting the material that they use to teach their teachers uh, about the philosophy of education, uh, educational psychology, and all this material, and sit down and read it so that I would have an understanding of what my brother's talking about. And I did that. And I found it very fascinating. Because what my brother's school has done this year is they have a motto, and their motto, the official motto of his school there in Ohio is, and I'll just read it, is education for, educating for success in an uncertain world. And I thought that was fascinating. I thought that was a fascinating, I thought it was a pretty good, pretty good motto. 
So what I wanted to do is to break that down and to read their material and to see what they had to say about all that. And they talk about the three components in that motto. The issue of success and the educating is the condition for success. And then the third thing is an uncertain world. And when I started reading what they had to say about that, I found it very interesting. For instance, their definition of success I found interesting. Uh, based upon a study that they had performed, the educational department had performed back in 1981 by a guy named Richard Prowett, they interviewed a bunch of teachers across the state from West Virginia, and they asked those teachers, what is the ideal student? In other words, if you do your job in a way that it could most, the best way it could possibly be done, what would the student look like who leaves your school? What is the ideal student? And they interviewed them all across the state of West Virginia at all levels. And what they came up with was sort of this, this, um, this profile of what an ideal student looks like. And I can't read all the material to you because it was quite lengthy, but I lifted some of the words that they used that they thought were key terms that described the successful or ideal student. And this is what they called the person. This is how they described him. That the ideal student is a productive person, assertive, self-confident, self-motivated, reasonable, socially mature, independent, self-disciplined, responsible. And then they go on and on and on and on and on. And they, and they start describing what it means to be the ideal person. Now, one of the things that, I don't know if you picked this up, that I found interesting right off the bat was that these, this description is not really directed at the academic pursuit. It's all talking about the person as an individual. It's the, what is called the affective qualities rather than the educational qualities. Now, that was interesting because I always thought that when you went to school, that certainly, that certainly in the public school setting, that they're not trying to mold people or personalities, but what they're trying to do is to, to disseminate or to communicate information, you know, the reading, writing, arithmetic. But that is no longer true, that the public school system is just as much involved in molding an individual into a particular personality type, a particular uh, individual with certain characteristics as we are. They're looking to change personality. They're looking to change something deeper than the level of just intellect, which is really interesting that they have, they have moved that direction. So that was the first thing I found interesting in the description they gave to them. The second thing was that they said there, is a, there are conditions that a student must meet if they're going to be the ideal student. And I found that interesting as well, because the number one condition that must be realized in the student's life if they're to ever have any hope of being successful in life is, I mean, well, I don't know what you're thinking in your mind, but this isn't what I thought they would say, uh, even, even as much as I've read in the whole area of the uh, personality movement. But their number one condition to producing the ideal student is a high self-concept. And they went on from that to say that that is the number one thing that the schools should be trying to do, is to develop in the student a high self-concept. And they gave studies, to, they, they backed that up with several studies that they have done. And in one particular study titled The Teacher Behavior and Pupil Self-Concept, they described how a high self-concept is attained. And it's attained by, listen to this, this is really, I thought this was really uh, reflective of where they're coming from as far as their mindset and worldview. They said that an ideal student must have a high self-concept. A high self-concept grows out of two basic things that a person experiences in life. And here are the two things that this material said. Number one, a student will have a high self-concept if they are successful in controlling their world for their own progress or gain. That's number one. If you're going to have an ideal student, if you're going to have a student who's going to enter into our culture and make a positive contribution, then we must teach that student how to be in control of their environment. That was one. The second thing they said is that, and I'm almost quoting here, that a high self-concept is the product of being valued by important people in your environment. 
Those are the two important things. Those are the two keys to all education. A high self-concept is, is necessary if a student is to have a positive experience in school, and a positive experience in school produces a high self-concept. The two are inseparable. And I thought that was really interesting. And then they went on after they said, this is success, this is how you get success. Then they talked about our uncertain world. And I found that fascinating as well because in this particular category, at least from a, a, an observer standpoint, we don't have much argument with them. And as they went in their material to describe what they see as, an, as our uncertain world, I found that a lot that we could agree with. And I found it interesting that they would be acknowledging that. For instance, they said that our world is so uncertain because of our present economic situation with the national debt being such that if every man, woman, and child wrote a check right now for $20,000, we would just barely meet the national debt for the coming year. And they started talking about how the economics run awry in this country has really, even though you and I don't feel it every day because when we go to our bank machine and put in our card or lay down our credit card or write a check or pay our cash, we get something back. But eventually, if something is not done by the national debt, we're, going to have, we're all going to feel it in our everyday lives. And actually, we are in the interest rates. But they talked about that. And another thing they, they mentioned was medicine. And I found that interesting because we wrestle with that as Christians. Right now, the median age in the United States is 33. That means half the population is younger, half is older. The median age is 33. Do you realize that when you are my age, the median age for the uh, citizen of the United States will be 60? According to the demographic trend right now? Well, that's an incredible thought. When you get to be where I am, the and I won't be the 60, one of the 60, the people at 60, I'll be a little ways away from that, but, but when you get to be my age, the average, the person that is the most common age frame is going to be the age of 60. And they went on to explain how that's going to create increasing dilemmas for us in the medical world. Because as you already know, if you've been reading the papers, there's already men, Dr. Kikorian, who they call Dr. Death, has produced this machine to kill people. Have you read anything about that? I mean, he sells it and he markets it. It's a suicide machine. And as the population gets older, issues like that are going to become more and more prevalent. Another thing that is a trend is more and more companies and industries are taking away health insurance. And the average trip to the hospital in 10 years from now, in 10 years from now the cost of the average trip will be over $10,000. Now, you put all of those together. You've got an aging population... You've got people who are challenging the, the very fiber of our society with suicide machinery that can be bought, and it's a self-help thing. I mean, you can actually what Dr. Kikorian is wanting to do is to provide this in the drugstore. You go and you buy, you buy aspirin, you go and you buy uh, Maalox, and you go and you buy something to kill yourself this afternoon. I mean, that's where he wants to go with this thing. He thinks it is, um, it is immoral for us to not provide this to our culture. Well, as society ages, as the cost of medicine and health care becomes so expensive, and as people are having less and less opportunity to be on a health plan, you are going to face, and I am going to face, some incredible problems when it comes to medical ethics and, and social ethics as it, as it deals with the aging. And so they talked about that. And then they go on and on. They talk about other things that, for instance, that you know that from 1900, there have been 29 major industrial accidents, and that's defined by 50 deaths or more. The interesting thing about that is that 25 of those have occurred since 1980. 80% of all deaths of major industrial accidents have occurred since 1980. And what the point of this material that my brother had in his school is, is that industry and technology has advanced so rapidly that it has outdistanced our ability to make solid moral decisions. We're, we're way beyond that now. In fact, 
industry is so far beyond us that we can't control it. And of course, Bhopal and, and Chernobyl and all of that reminds us of, of, of those things. And they're saying, look, our world is so uncertain. It is so unpredictable. And the conclusion of the study, and, and I'll get off of this, is the conclusion of the study is there is a, uh, an entry by a guy named Tim Brooks. And I think some of you in some of your textbooks are familiar with this guy as well. And Tim Brooks said the 1950s was an age of affluence, the 60s an age of challenge, the 70s an age of transformation, and the 80s an age that was the me decade. And he says that the 90s is certainly should properly be titled the age of uncertainty because we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, with nuclear war and chemical war and what's happening in the Gulf, every single day is up for grabs. There's nothing really predictable anymore. And when they polled a group of young people across the United States who took the ACT examination, they asked them what the number one problem that they have on their mind that, that is facing the world, and they said nuclear war and whether or not there's going to be a tomorrow. I mean, there's no doubt that uncertainty is a big issue. Now, what do I, what, what's the point of all that? The point of the study is that this is something new, that uncertainty and, and, and all these three issues of success, conditions for success and uncertainty, are things that have come about in the 1990s. My understanding of that is that that is not true. Because uncertainty, and they give a definition of uncertainty, uncertainty means lacking faith in truth, lacking faith in reality, not having the ability to rely on someone or something, the absence of definition. That's how they define uncertainty. Now, if you listen to that definition, I think you would agree with me that uncertainty is a product of what? Not the 90s, but of, of sin. That we could say, I think, and be biblically correct, that ever since the fall of man coming out of the garden, everything's been uncertain. Everything. Not just because of industry, not just because of the rise of the nuclear war and the atomic bomb in the 40s and 50s, but everything has been uncertain since sin entered into the world. Life is not predictable. Life is not joyful. Life is not happy. Things don't work the way they were even designed to work by God. It, is, it has been that way, not just in the 90s, but ever since life began. And in fact, what I'd like for you to do is to turn to Joshua chapter 1, because I, find, I think it is, it is telling for us as believers to remind ourselves that those three components that my brother's school is, is discussing this year as a part of their theme into the 90s are three issues that have been on the mind of man since time began. In fact, in Joshua chapter 1, we're going back in history 3,500 years or more, depending on your, your viewpoint of the date of the Exodus. And when you go back 3,500 years, Joshua is faced with those three subjects on his mind. The issue of what is success, what is prosperity, what are the conditions to prosperity, and the fact that life is uncertain. Everything is uncertain. Now look at, look at the passage. First of all, before we don't have time, and I don't want to take time to read the whole thing through, but begin in verse 7 and 8. Let me just pick it up right in the middle of the passage. I want to look at totally from verses 1 through 9. But look at verses 7 and 8. Joshua is concerned with prosperity. Joshua is concerned with success. Why? Because God is concerned about that. In this passage, God is addressing Joshua on these three subjects. He's saying, Joshua... I want to talk to you about success. Joshua, I want to talk to you about the conditions for success. And Joshua, life is uncertain. Now look at verses 7 and 8. Only be strong. And of course, we're picking it up in the middle of God's discussion with Joshua. And very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it from the right or to the left so that you may have in my New American Standard, it says success wherever you go. Verse 8. 
He repeats that. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you shall make your way, and he uses two terms here, prosperous, and then you will have success. Those are interesting terms. In fact, if you take the root of those two Hebrew terms, it basically has two meanings. The word prosperity has the meaning of insight. In fact, if you go to 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 14, the word insight in the, New, in the King James Version is translated wisdom, or the word, I'm sorry, prosperity is, tra- is translated wisdom. In other words, all through the Old Testament, the term that is used here for prosperity is interchanged with the word wisdom. Sometimes the English translators translate it to wisdom. Sometimes they translate it to insight. Sometimes they translate it to understanding. And sometimes they translate it to prosperity. And at the root of this word is the idea that wisdom, which John spoke about Monday, and success in life are inseparable in the Hebrew mind. That to be prosperous is to be a man of wisdom or a woman of wisdom. To be prosperous in life is to be a person of insight. But it's not just wisdom and knowing how to control your world like my brother studying in his school in Ohio. But the wisdom that they're talking about when they talk about, remember that I said the definition of uncertainty is absence of definition. The wisdom that the Bible addresses is just the opposite of that. To be a person of wisdom is to be a person who has the ability to have to understand distinctions and to make separations, to actually to apply judgment and definitions to things, to decisions, to life, and to issues. That's what it means to be a person of wisdom. To say, this is God, and this is not God. And so the first thing Joshua starts, or God says to Joshua, Joshua, if you're going to be what I want you to be, you're going to have to be a person of distinction. In other words, not distinctiveness, but be able to distinguish what is of me and what is not of me. Totally contrary to what my brother's understanding of his school is about what it means to be successful. The other term that is translated here, success, is, is a term that just simply means to accomplish that which is att- intended. That simple. That's the root idea. Accomplish that which is intended. And of course, in this passage, what God is saying to Joshua is that if you're going to be a person of success, or if you're going to be pros- a person who is prosperous, prosperity and successfulness is defined this way. You're an individual who accomplishes that which is intended of you by me, implied in the passage. And one of the ways that you will do that, the key way that you will do that, is through the application of wisdom. That's what God is telling Joshua. That's what I want of you. Now, the other thing that is, that is revealed to us throughout the scriptures is, and even revealed to us in this passage, is that success or prosperity has a general definition and then it has specific application in our, in our everyday life. If you, if you know what I mean by that. And for instance, in Joshua's case, God had already told Joshua in the ultimate sense what it means to be successful. And then he starts describing to Joshua in a particular sense, in your everyday life, what success will look like. And this is what he says to Joshua. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and you don't need to turn that, when God addressed Moses and Joshua and the children of Israel, he defined his ultimate purpose for his people. And what did he say? My ultimate purpose for you. In other words, if you do what I intended you to do, this is what you will look like. And what you will look like, according to Deuteronomy chapter 6, is a person who knows me as your God. A person who loves me with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. That's my ultimate purpose for you. That's what it means to be successful in the ultimate sense of the word. In a general sense of the word. We go to the New Testament and the same thought, of course, is repeated. When Christ is asked to distill the entire Bible down to one or two commands, he does the same thing. He says to the disciples and to the people who are questioning him, 
In God's mind, you will be successful if you are this person. And what is the person, who is the person he describes? A person who loves me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, and loves your neighbor as yourself. That's the ultimate goal that we have before us. But then he goes on and gets a little more specific in that. In Joshua's case, if you read through the last chapters or all the passages in Deuteronomy and continuing through the book of Joshua, God had some specific things that he wanted Joshua to accomplish in pursuit of that ultimate goal. And in Joshua's case, it was the conquering of the land. It was to be a blessing to the nations around him. It was to multiply the children of Israel as far as the numbers. And it was also to accomplish rest for the people. And the Bible does the same thing for you and I. When it talks about what it means to love God and to love others, it doesn't just leave us in some nebulous circle and to kind of make our own decision of what that means. The Bible goes on to give some specific teaching on what it looks like to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. In passages such as Romans chapter 12 and chapter 13, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul takes the command to love God and to love your neighbor and gives them specific application and says, if you love God then you will not be a person who lies to your neighbor or steals from your neighbor. In other words, he's starting to give a specific application. Of course, the epistle of 1 John does the same thing. If you are a lover of God, then you will show that love by the way that you live with your brother and that you will not cheat him. That when he has a need, that you will not be callous to that need. When there is an opportunity for you to show hospitality, you will not turn away from that opportunity. And of course, James, the, the epistle of James does the same thing. In fact, the whole New Testament does the same thing. And so what is happening in Joshua is that God is saying, look, Joshua, to be successful, you need to be that which I've intended you to be through the application of discernment and wisdom. That person, if I were to describe him as a person who loves me and loves their neighbor. And then when it comes down to a specific application of this passage, there are some things you must do. And when it comes to our daily life in the dorm or in the classroom and in our, in our marriages and our family, there's some specific things that God expects from us as well. And so that's where he begins. He says, Joshua, this is what it means to be successful. And in that sense, I think it's, it's wrong for us to attack the concept of being successful. That's not the problem. It's not wrong to pursue, pursue success. The problem is, is the way we define that. And of course, my brother's school defined it in, in an entirely different way than the way the Word of God does. Now, the next thing that he talks to Joshua in this passage, he says, Joshua, not only is, is, is success important, but there are conditions to success. And look what he says in the passage. I think this is really interesting. If you're to be the God, person God wants you to be, if you're to do what God wants you to do, if we're to accomplish what God intends for us to accomplish, now get this, it's really simple in this passage. In fact, this theme is repeated all through the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. People are writing uh, books that offer five views of sanctification here. Another person writes another book with five views of sanctification. I mean, everybody's wanting to talk about what does it mean to be a person who is growing in their, and deepening in their love for God and is growing and deepening in their love for their brother. What is it that I need to have in my life and for that to happen? And, and God tells Joshua, it's, it's really, when you get down to it, it's quite simple. There's only two things that must be true of your life if you're to be a person who loves God and loves your neighbor. And he says it in this passage. Let, let, me, let me show it to you. Look what he says. Verse 2. My Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross the Jordan, you and all this people, to the land that I am given you. And every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given you, as I have spoke. Now drop down to verse 6. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people the possession of the land, which I swore to the fathers to give them. And he goes on and says in verse 9, Have not I commanded you? What I think is the, are the two conditions that God reveals to Joshua, if he is to be a man of success, are these two. And they're very simple. 
Trust me is number one. And the second thing in the passage is revealed, obey me. Those are the only two things that are required. And when he talks about trust, he says there's two things that you need to trust in. The one thing is that you need to trust in my promises and you need to trust in my presence. And then the other thing is to obey my word. That's all it takes to be a person, to be the person that God wants you to be. It's the message that he gives Joshua. Because he's given it to a man who is facing an incredible uh, obstacles in his life. Already the children of Israel have just come off of 30 days straight mourning for their previous leader. He's dealing with a group of people that Moses said was an obstinate, rebellious people. And these weren't a bunch of righteous people in pursuit of holiness. This was a very tough crowd and a, and a large crowd of in excess of a million and a half people. It was a young crowd, people that hadn't observed firsthand many of the great miracles that God had performed for Moses. They were an inexperienced crowd in that they had no experience in fighting battle. None of this was true of them. And God is telling Joshua, Joshua, I know you're standing on this side of the river, and I know on the other side of the river is a group of people that are mighty in war. There are seven nations. You're going to be fighting three military campaigns, one in the central, then in the south, north, and then in the south. There's going to be at least 30 major enemy armies coming against you. And I know all this is going to be true, and all this idolatry, all this paganism, and all this wickedness. And yet he looks at Joshua, and you'd think that what he would say to Joshua is, Joshua, you need to be sent back and to get a lot of training and skills, leadership tactics, a lot of training and this and that and the other. But that's not what he says to him at all. He says, the only thing that you need, Joshua, to meet any challenge that you face is these two simple things. Trust and obey. Trust my promises. Now, what an important message to Joshua and what an important message to us. And that God is saying to Joshua, Joshua, look, I know that there are times then that the way that I have revealed myself to you doesn't seem to match the way you're experiencing life right now. That, is, that happens. That happens to you and that happens to me. I know that when I pick up my Bible, God reveals to me that he loves me and that he, he is the giver of life to me. He is the sustainer of my life. He's revealed all of that to me in, in, in his word. But when I go home to West Virginia and I sit down with my mom and dad and I try to talk to them about the gospel and I so desperately would love to have two parents that I could sit down and pray with and to talk about the things of the Lord, it's a little hard sometimes to understand how God's love for me and provision for me matches what I'm experiencing right now. And you had the same thing happen to you. And what does God say that we must turn to in those situations? You've got to turn to trust in me and to believe that I am who I say I am, even if you're not experiencing that right now. And I think one of the problems that we had, at least one of the problems I have, maybe you don't have this problem, is that I get, I have trouble distinguishing the difference between confusion and unbelief. Because one is sin and one is not. The Bible makes it very clear, and Christ made it very clear to the, to the disciples, that unbelief is sin. To not to believe that God is who he revealed himself to be is sin. And so if you find yourself in a situation where who God revealed himself to be does not match what you're experiencing, and the, res the response that you have from that is that you take life into your own hands and you trust in your own energy or you trust in the, in the deliverance of someone else or something else besides God and you, don't, and you don't allow that circumstance and that trial to propel you towards God, then the result of that circumstance is unbelief and that is sin because that is not what God is trying to produce in our lives when he brings trials and hardships before us. What he is trying to do is to draw us to himself. But, you, but that does not happen in unbelief. That is sin. 
unbelief is turning to something other than God. And when you're faced with what Joshua is faced with, an unbelievably confusing and difficult circumstances, and you don't see any answer, you don't see any solution, you don't see any rescuer either in yourself or around you, and you allow that to move you away from God, that is unbelief and that is sin. But it is not sin, and it's certainly I, in, in the lives, and I don't have time to quote all the passages I wrote down, it's because it is evident all through Scripture that great men of God, great women of God, and even in my own experience and talking with people in my own life, it is not sin to be confused about all that. I see, that's a di- there's a lot of difference there. It's one thing to not believe that God is who he revealed himself to be because you're having trouble in your life. It's another thing to say, I just don't understand how that works. I don't understand where God is. God said he is this, and I look at my life and I don't see this. And I just, I'm just a little confused by that. I'm greatly confused by that. I don't understand that at all. That's not sin. And I think one of the struggles that we have is we don't make that distinction. To be confused, we see as unbelief. And unbelief is not, or confusion is not necessarily sin. And so God comes into Joshua's life and he says, Joshua, look, I know you're facing all these obstacles. And interestingly enough, what he doesn't do is give him an answer to all of them. He doesn't say, oh, look, Joshua, look, at here's all these solutions. Here's how it's all going to work. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, Joshua, this is what I'm going to give you so that you rise above and you become the man of victory, the man of valor, which is sometimes, I think, the tendency, as we've all experienced, when we face that situation of hardship, not only do we react in unbelief by looking to someone else besides God to answer our circumstance, but we actually recreate our own God into the image that we would like for him to be in in that circumstance. Have you ever done that? That happens all the time, I think, in evangelical Christianity. In other words, what happens is, is that evangelical Christians, people who believe in one God, they want that God to be a certain way. Because when they come to a situation and they find out, as I did when I was in Iowa, a good friend of mine named Scott, he and I, he asked me out to lunch one day, and, and Scott and I went to lunch. I had no idea. He was my youth worker in my junior high group. And Scott and I were eating lunch together, and, and you know, we ate lunch different times. And he invited me. We sat down. And we start talking, and he said, now, Dave, I'd like to tell you why I want to, I want to, I want to eat lunch with you. And I said, why? He says, because I just found out I've got leukemia. And the kind of leukemia I have, on record, no one has lived past two years who has contracted this particular type of leukemia. Now, Scott's got two children, both in my youth group, a sixth-grade girl and a fourth-grade boy. And Scott's sitting across the table, and he's saying, Dave, he says, what I wanted to do is I think that God is a God who heals physical illness. And I, and I wasn't sure what he, where he was going with that. And we sat for the next couple of hours talking about, Scott, one of the tendencies that you're going to have in this situation is to recreate God into an image so that he's the God that doesn't want anybody to experience physical illness. That's going to be a tendency. And we have that tendency, and God knows that. And he says, look, rather than seeking an unbelief solutions from someone else, rather than recreating me, which the children of Israel had already done, in Exodus when Moses went up to the mount and things looked really bad, what they did is they recreated God into their image to make him someone that they could manage. He said, don't do that. Come towards me, trusting in my promises. Believe that I am who I revealed myself to be. That's the first key to success, to being the person I intended you to be. What's the second one? And he, said, he says it all through this passage. Not only is it, is it um, God's promises, but it's God's presence. And in verses 5 and 9, look at them. 
He says, I will, he says, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. And then in verse 9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not tremble, be dismayed, for the Lord God is with you wherever you go. God is giving Joshua two promises or two things to trust in. One, the promises of his word, I am who I said I am. And secondly, the promise or the prospect of his presence being with Joshua. And what's interesting about that is that those, the, the assurance that God is with Joshua is always given in the context of Joshua's own fearfulness. In other words, in order to respond to the fear that Joshua feels in his own heart and his own soul about the circumstances of life, God said, look to me and be reminded of the fact that I am with you in this situation. I am there. That is, my, that is the, the condition to success when facing trial. It's not just to trust in my promises that I'm who I revealed myself to be, but to also believe that I am with you in the midst of that trial. I'm there. I am there right there with you. And you know, it's really interesting in, in the book of Exodus, as this new nation is, is newly formed, brand new nation coming out of, out of Egypt. Here is this, this, this infant of a group called Israel. And one of the very first things that God promises them in chapter 29 of, of Exodus is what became the single most, I think, important issue or fact in the experience of this new nation. And that is that God promised to tabernacle or dwell among them. He says, that's why you're so different. When he starts talking about what distinguishes the nation of Israel from all other nations... And what distinguishes us as New Testament believers from anybody else? What distinguishes us is that God dwells with us. That's what's different. And by having God's presence be a reality in our life, anything that we face, any enemy, any opposition, any circumstance, any trial pales in light of the presence of God that is ours. That's an incredible thought. In fact, God advanced it one notch in the New Testament. Rather than just dwelling among his people in his omnipresence or symbolically in the tabernacle, in the New Testament, Christ came and dwelt among us in his flesh, and then it advanced to one more notch, and the Holy Spirit dwells in us right here in our body. What an incredible thought. And God is offering that reality to us in the prospect of the trials and the confusion and the questions that we have in our lives. And that's what he was doing to Joshua. He said, Joshua, listen, I am with you. And you know that one of the, the most oft-repeated negative command in the Bible is be not afraid. Look it up. It's the most repeated negative command, be not afraid. And in the majority of the cases when be not afraid is repeated in the Bible, right behind it is this, for I am with you. And that's what God is saying to Joshua. Joshua, I know what it looks like. Joshua, I'm not giving you the answers. Joshua would have liked to have the answers. That's the way I am. I want, I want the solution. You know, give it to me now. Get my parents saved. Why is it that I've been praying for 15 years for my mom and dad to come to know the Lord? Doesn't God love my parents as much as I do? If he does, why aren't they getting saved? Because if I had the, the choice to make the decision of their salvation, it would have happened. And that's so confusing to me. Because I understand God to be a God of mercy and love and compassion. And yet I know that my love and compassion pales in light of God's. And if I had the choice, my parents would be believers and they're not believers. And it's hard. And God says, oh, when, I, when you don't experience me, 
the way that I have revealed myself to be. Trust me. Trust in my promises because I am who I said I am. And trust in my presence. The other thing that he says quickly is he says to Joshua, Joshua, the other key to success is obedience. Obedience. Don't expect to be strengthened and nurtured and encouraged by my promise, the promises of my word that are there before you. And in Joshua's case, as in our case, they were written before Joshua because he says, obey all that is written, all that Moses has written. Don't expect to be strengthened by God's promises. Don't expect to be nurtured by the, the reality of his presence if there is sin that we are harboring in our lives. Obedience is so essential. Not some shallow, surface, legalistic formula that is some kind of trick that we're playing on God to obligate him to be good to us. That's not what God is talking about. He says, don't play games with me. Don't try to obligate me to you to do for you what you want me to be. But rather to, from your heart, and out of a relationship of knowing who I am, and out of the reality of sensing my presence in your life, from your soul and from your heart, seek to obey my word, to know my word, and to follow it out and to live it out in your life. And that's what he says to Joshua. He says, you need to obey me. And, and, he, and he goes through the passage, and, and I wrote them down in verse 7. He says, be careful to do all according according to all the law. Verse 7 again, do not turn from the law to the left or to the right. Verse 8, do not let the book of the law depart out of your mouth. Verse 9, meditate upon it day and night. Verse, or verse 8 again, verse 8 again, be careful to do all that is according to that which is written. In other words, in a nutshell, God says to Joshua, Joshua, I know life is uncertain. I know Moses is dead. I know Moses is the only leader that Israel has ever had. I know Moses was the one that parted the Red Sea. I know that Moses was the one that confronted Pharaoh. I know that Moses was someone who was very special to these people so that they wept for 30 days solid when he died. I know that Joshua, you're 93 years old and obviously not up for this task as he continues, as Moses continued to remind Joshua, please don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. Be strong and have courage. He says, I know about the seven nations. I know that there's a river on, on between you and what I've asked you to do. I know that the people, Joshua, that you're going to lead are rebellious and obstinate people. I know, Joshua, that you're lacking in skill and experience for the task that I've asked you to perform. He said, but that's not the issue of life. The only thing you need to be what I intended you to be is to trust me and obey me. That's, it's that simple. And that's the message you gave to Joshua. God has called us to be like him. And what we not, don't need to be like him as a community here at the Master's College is skillful leaders. What we don't need to be like God as a community as God intended us to be is for you all to be perfectly righteous. If we do, we're all in trouble on your behalf and on the leadership behalf. Because it's not going to happen. What we don't need to be what God intended us to be is to have weak enemies. I mean, that'd be nice. That we could all go form a commune somewhere and kind of shut the enemies out and the battles out. There's a group of friends of mine down at Grace Church who are, who are actually planning on that right now. They're buying some property up in Oregon, and there are about six or eight families who want to have a commune. I think it's a horrible idea. I mean, there are other, that's an automatic formula for stopping to grow in their, in their walk with the Lord. That's not the answer. Weak enemies isn't the answer. None of that's the answer. The answer is trusting and obeying God. As you recall, my brother's school says if a person is going to be successful... They're going to have to do two things. They're going to have to depend on their own ability to, to control their world. 
and they're going to have to depend on other people's favorable opinion of them. That's what their goal is. Can I say this and we'll close? If you leave the master's college confident in your ability to control your world and leave the master's college with the prospect that your success is contingent upon other people's opinion of you, then we failed miserably. We, we have really failed. Because what we're doing with our education and what we're doing with our discipleship is not hoping that you're not getting the message that I'm going to walk out of here some supercharged Christian who has all the charisma and confidence and zeal and ability and skill, but you'll walk out of here saying, man, I am weak. The world is a mess. And I haven't got the answers. And life is confusing. And what really gives me joy and what shuts out despair is not my skill and ability but it is the reality of God's promises and his presence in my life and my commitment to obey his word. Then we're successful if you leave with that message. And you're successful. Let's pray together.